Let me begin by uh, opening my heart just very, very wide to you. Uh, God called me to Pregnancy Center Ministry 47 years ago in uh, March of 1972. Then God gave me the wonderful privilege uh, to lead the church here to establish one of the first pregnancy centers in the nation. I served as a pregnancy center director, uh, counselor, urine collector, pregnancy tester, janitor, etc., uh, etc. Et you know exactly what I'm talking about, especially those of you on staff. Uh, God then opened the door for me to travel. And I traveled throughout the nation uh, and had the opportunity to assist in the establishment of hundreds of pregnancy centers and to train thousands of pregnancy center staff and volunteers. Now that I am white-haired and entering my latter years of ministry, God is giving me my greatest joy, which is to encourage those in this ministry to remain faithful to Christ and His calling to rescue preborn babies from slaughter. I say all of that simply to say, I know this ministry. I know the challenges you face, the struggles you wrestle with, and the sacrifices you make. I pray regularly for you, daily for you. Uh, I have the deepest admiration love and respect for you. I do truly consider you contemporary heroes of the faith. And it is a very humbling experience simply to be in your presence and be in a position to minister to you where I actually think you're probably more equipped to minister to me. Uh, but let me express a concern right now that will sort of take us into this series this weekend. I am deeply concerned about the escalating hostility in America uh, toward Christianity and our pregnancy centers. And it's my firm conviction that that hostility will only increase. But it is not so much the hostility that concerns me. But whether or not we are prepared to follow Christ regardless of the consequences and count it an honor to suffer for Him. In the hostility, when we confront adversity, when we confront persecution, will we remain faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ? And, of course, this does bring us to the purpose for the series of lessons we will be challenged with, I trust, this weekend. And uh, you see the purpose of the series there in your notes. With the slander, with the hostility against pregnancy centers intensifying, we must what? Never retreat. Never retreat in fear. But what? Courageously advance our work of rescuing preborn children from abortion. And the purpose of this series is to encourage us as pregnancy center workers to remain faithful through a study of seven 
biblical heroes of faith. And as we learn the lessons, they teach us on how to advance through the storm. May God give us the grace to be heroes of faith today, going forward. Amen? Now, the first biblical hero of faith that we're going to look at is Joseph. But uh, before we begin to look at Joseph, it is important to understand the reasons why Christianity and our ministries are coming under increased attack. So you'll notice there in the uh, introduction uh, to your notes that we should not be surprised that hostility is intensifying, and especially against our pregnancy centers. The Apostle Paul warned in 2 Timothy 3, what? In the last days, what? Difficult days would come. And as a result, all who desire, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer, what? Persecution. So why is persecution inevitable for followers of Christ? Look at those few reasons, and I'm just going to run through them very, very quickly. Uh, the first one is simply the Christian belief that there are moral absolutes rooted in God's character, revealed in God's Word, for which all men are held accountable. And as you know, this is in direct opposition to a secular society which says the only absolute allowed is the absolute insistence that there are no absolutes. Therefore, there can be no tolerance for Christians who possess the absolutes of God's Word by which all men will be judged. And this puts us as followers of Christ on a collision course with the secular culture in which we live. Second, and this is a biggie, and that's the truth that Jesus is the only way to heaven. Which is a death blow to the autonomy of man since Christianity requires a person to what? Turn from their sin, turn from going their own way, and submit to Jesus as Lord. Therefore, it is easier to attack Christians as being bigots than relinquish control and surrender to God. Third, the godly lifestyle and witness of believers, which serves as a light, exposing sin and pointing people to Jesus. Jesus said this, since men, what, love the darkness more than the light, they find it easier to try to extinguish the light than being exposed by the light. Fourth, the believer's conviction. And we need to be very firm here. That no person, no authority, no government has the right to command what is contrary to God's laws. And if they do, it is the duty of Christians to disobey. The apostle says what? We must obey God rather than men. So faith in God calls us to stand alone when necessary in obedience to God regardless of the consequences. And then fifth... And this is applied very specifically to our ministries. It is crucial to understand what this means for pregnancy center ministry. Our ministries are built, do you understand this, on the two truths the devil hates most. 
the sanctity of human life and the gospel of Jesus Christ, which gives every man intrinsic worth and dignity. Our adversary, please understand this, our adversary, the devil, realizes abortion not only kills a baby, it not only wounds the mother and the father, even more important, abortion aborts the conscience of a nation. Declaring God to be dead and man without purpose. Therefore, the devil cannot tolerate our ministries. He cannot allow us to go unchallenged. He is coming after you. And you need to understand that. He is. He is coming after us. Therefore, knowing difficult and challenging days lie ahead. Let's look at lesson one. Joseph navigating the maze of God's providence. Now, let me just mention one thing going forward. The intent in this series, as we look at greater persecution coming in the future, is not so much to develop methods and strategies, because the attacks are always going to change. What I'm attempting to do is to lay a biblical foundation For us to understand the attitude we should have towards persecution and adversity. How God uses persecution and adversity for our good and actually to advance our work. Because regardless of the methods and the strategies we develop to counter the attacks, without faith it's what? Impossible to please God. And so we need to have our lives rooted in the Scriptures. Believing God, knowing that as we do... That faith releases the power of God and will give us the victory. Let me also say, although we're talking about persecution and how it's going to intensify, what's the best way to prepare for future persecution? It's how you deal with today's adversity. And so, everything we're going to look at this weekend, can it be applied to where you are right now. And that's the way I want you to receive this truth. Because I know it's only as you begin to build this truth in your life and apply it to the adversities that you're presently encountering will you be equipped and prepared for what lies ahead. God's providence is the primary lesson learned in Joseph's story. And this really lays a uh, foundation for everything that we're going to say going forward. Every truth that we will see in this lesson, we will see weaved in the uh, remaining lessons. And it is faith in God's providence that is the only thing, only thing that will bring us victoriously through advers adversity and persecution. Now, what is God's providence? What is God's providence? Well, providence, and just looking at the word, you can see it comes from the word provide, which consists of two parts. Pro, which means forward and on behalf of. Forward and on behalf of. And the word vide is Latin, which means to see. It's where we get our word video. So God's providence is God seeing forward 
God seeing beforehand everything we need to accomplish His plan. And then God acting on the behalf of His child to meet the need. I'll repeat that. God's providence is God seeing before, forward. God seeing beforehand everything that you will ever need to accomplish His plan. And then God acting on your behalf to meet that need. Folks, this is a precious truth. And it impacts so many areas of the Christian life. Take, take prayer, for example. In eternity past, God, by means of His omniscience, foresaw every need, every crisis, every adversity you would ever encounter. And because He said His love on you in eternity past, He made provision for you. And before you even confront that issue in time, space, and its history, the provision's been met. He's dropped a care package right along your path that you're going to need just at the right moment. And that's why Jesus said, hey, I know what you need even before you ask. And people say, well, if that's true, why would I pray? Goodness gracious, you're missing the whole point. We should be so excited to go to God in prayer. That's the means that He's given us to discover the provision. To appropriate the provision. Matter of fact, in, I quoted a minute ago Matthew 6. He knows your needs before you even ask. It's in that same passage. He says you're to go to your father in what? Secret. You're to pray in the what? Inner room. In the Greek that's tamion. You know what a tamion was? Every Jewish home had a tamion. They didn't have banks where they could deposit their monies or their uh, jewelry or other things in a safety deposit box. So every Jewish home had a tamion. It was a secret room, a secret hiding place where they would store their valuables. So you ask, okay, if God has already met my need, where has He stored that need until I need it? In the tamion, in the prayer room. So if we neglect prayer, we what? We often miss the care packages God has dropped. Because we're so busy in our anxiety and our worry that sometimes we even trip over it. I've always so wondered when I get to heaven uh, how many of those care packages I missed in my life because of worry and anxiety and lack of faith in God. You know, we use the phrase, I will see to it, and it means what? Hey, no need to worry. You can count on me to take care of that. Well, folks, God's providence is God's see, see to it to you. God's saying, I'm going to see to it. I'm going to take care of you. I got you. Trust in me. Put another way, God's providence is God's guarantee. God's providence is God's guarantee to you, to your ministry, that nothing, Absolutely nothing will ever touch your life. No person, no power, no perplexity, no pain, unless it is necessary to accomplish God's plan for your life.
Let me say that one more time. It's God's guarantee. God's providence is God's guarantee that absolutely nothing will ever touch your life unless it is necessary to accomplish His plan for your life. And this is why the Apostle Paul could say with confidence, and we sang about it earlier this morning, if God is for us, what? Who can be against us? Because God is what? Causing all things to work for our good and His greater glory. And it is this magnificent truth about God's providence that is behind Joseph's life story. Joseph endured 13 long years of suffering that began at the age of 17 when his envious brothers sold him into slavery and lasted until he was elevated to prime minister of Egypt at the age of 30. And the majority of those 13 years were spent in an Egyptian prison. But at the end of the story, when the brothers are afraid that Joseph is about to exact revenge on them, and he has all the power and authority he needs to do it, and they run to David, throw themselves on the ground, begin to beg for their lives, Joseph gives this testimony of God's providence, one of the greatest statements in the Scripture, possibly the greatest concerning God's providence. Genesis chapter 50, Genesis 50, verses 19 through 21. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? And as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. You know, one of the things that we often miss in Joseph's story is the larger plan God was accomplishing. And let me explain. Joseph's great-grandfather was Abraham. God revealed to Abraham that he would move his family out of the promised land and would put them under foreign domination for 400 years, after which they would return to the promised land and possess it for themselves. Now, one of the reasons for this is that God's plan was for that chosen family to become His chosen nation. He knew if they remained in Canaan, they would be destroyed by their enemies while still small in number. And God's plan worked extremely well. If you're familiar with the story, when Joseph moves the family to Egypt, they number only 70 people. But when they left Egypt, they were a nation of millions. Their population surpassed the population of Egypt itself. And Joseph, this was the larger plan. Joseph was God's instrument to move God's people from Canaan to Egypt for their ultimate good. Now, how did God accomplish this? Think about that with me for a moment. First, God allowed Joseph's brothers to sell him into slavery. Why? Well, he had to get Joseph to Egypt first. 
Next, God used false rape charges against Joseph to get him into prison. And let me just pause right there for a minute. You think, boy, God uses some harsh methods. Well, number one, he is sovereign. So no point battling with him there. But let me just point out something that probably is very obvious. Do you think Joseph would have volunteered? (laughs) You know, he's a little spoiled brat of his father. A little pampered. I don't know that he would have volunteered to go to Egypt. I don't know if he would have volunteered to go into prison. So you say, well, why in the world did, did God allow him to be put in prison? Because in prison, Joseph became a friend of someone. A very significant someone. It was Pharaoh's cupbearer. And because of their connection in prison, that cupbearer learned of Joseph's ability to interpret dreams. And then God used the betrayal of that same friend. Remember, Joseph was instrumental in getting the cupbearer released. And he was trusting that cupbearer, when he got released, would remember him. But it says the cupbearer, what? Forgot Joseph. Betrayed his kindness. And Joseph remained in prison for another two years. Why? So he would be available at just the right time to interpret Pharaoh's dream. Remember, the Pharaoh had his dream. The cupbearer goes, hey, yeah, I remember this kid in prison. And then as a result, he was what? Promoted to prime minister of Egypt. Why? So he would prepare Egypt for seven years of famine. Why? To bring his brothers to Egypt to buy grain. Why? To bring the family to Egypt to ensure the survival and growth of the chosen nation which would usher in the Messiah for the salvation of the world. Now, look in your notes at the key truth. And this is where now we begin to Take Joseph's story, and I didn't have to go into great detail in Joseph's story because you're so familiar with it. I just hit the highlights, Uh, but the key truth is we begin to apply this to ourselves. It is so easy, knowing Joseph's story from beginning to end, to connect all the dots as we just did, and to see how God fulfilled His plan as we just did. We see the reason behind every single heartache and delay that the glory in the end far outweighed the years of suffering. And we conclude God is great. God is what? Good. But do not forget, for Joseph, during the long years of suffering, those 13 years, God's plan was shrouded in mystery. His life made absolutely no sense. He felt trapped in a menacing maze of darkness without a ray of light, and yet, although struggling, he maintained what? Faith in God. Now, in the same way, we need to understand this. God's plan for your life and your ministry will often become shrouded in mystery. And especially in times of adversity and persecution, when you're hurting 
and you're very perplexed. There will be times in your life in ministry where nothing makes any sense. When you cannot connect the dots, when there appears to be absolutely no rhyme or reason for what is happening, and you're struggling with that question, why God, why? There will be times when you feel trapped in a menacing and terrifying maze of darkness without a ray of light. And let's be honest, there's many of you that feel lost and alone in that maze right now. And that's why God's brought you to this conference, I trust. The purpose of this lesson is to encourage you, like Joseph, to maintain faith in God. To encourage you that God is prepared to do for you exactly what He did for Joseph. To cause it all to work for your ultimate spiritual growth and His glory. Now look at the lessons learned from Joseph. And we'll look at four of these or five of these before we close. Number one, when persecution, pain, and perplexity come and you feel lost in the maze of God's providence and there appears to be no rhyme or reason for what is happening, rest in God's sovereignty. You have to rest in God's sovereignty. If you have your Bible, turn to Romans 8. Romans 8. And this right here is the foundation we need to lay down going forward. Romans chapter 8. Two verses that you're all very, very familiar with. The Apostle Paul writes, And we know, and that's a no with absolute certainty, a no with absolute confidence. We know with certainty, we know with confidence that God, That God does what? He causes. He causes what? What? All things. Not some things. All things. Good, bad, and ugly things. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. It doesn't say that God causes everything that happens. God didn't put evil in Joseph's brother's hearts. That was the powers of darkness that motivated that evil act. But again, we go back to God's providence. Nothing catches God by surprise. He foresaw this. And because He had set His love on Joseph and He had planned for Joseph, He transformed that evil act into a blessing for Joseph to get him exactly where God needed him to be at just the right time to accomplish God's plan for his life, for his family, and the future nation that would bring in the Messiah for the salvation of the world. Now, the reason for all that is the next verse. For whom he foreknew, that's talking about you and I, to salvation, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. That word, circle that word predestined. In the Greek text, it's, don't let it intimidate you, that word. It means prohorizo. And it has two fundamental meanings in the Greek text. And again, notice, this refers to the children of God. Those 
who have placed their faith in Christ. God is saying, for those that have placed their faith in Christ, God has predestined that they would be conformed to the image of His Son. In other words, for me, it was September 20th, 1970, and God predestined, He predetermined that my destiny would be to be made like Jesus. And I began and entered that process, and it is a process, and what? It won't end until we see Jesus face to face. Oh, every one of us is a work in progress, amen? Thank God for that. So please be patient with me, and I'll try to be patient with you as we uh, work through that uh, uh, process uh, uh, together. So, pro-arisal means a predetermined outcome, that God is predetermined that the outcome of my faith, your faith in His Son Jesus, will result in becoming more like Jesus. But the word has a second meaning that's often neglected in teaching. The word is, is where we get the word horizon, and the thought is boundary, that God has placed a boundary around His child. This is where we get the concept, biblically, of heads of protection or umbrella of protection. So to put it in very, very simple terms, God says, if you're my child, I have literally surrounded you with my life and love. You're in the bubble of my love. I'm over you, under you, around you. And in the context of this, these two verses, what he's saying is, this is the guarantee I'm giving you as my child. This is the guarantee that I'm giving your ministry. That I won't let anything get through that hedge and touch your life or your ministry unless I know I can make it work for your good and my greater glory. And you need to accept it even as hard, as painful as it might be, as necessary to accomplish my plan for your life. Uh, turn over to the book of Job, just a good cross-reference to see this truth of the hedge. Don't have time to linger long here, and the purpose is not to teach Job, but we're looking at Joseph. But I do want you to see this. Most people neglect the fact when they look at Job is that God initiated everything here. Wasn't the devil. God initiated the whole shooting mats. Because look at verse 7. And the Lord's uh, we said, well, verse 6, now there was a day when the sons of God, angels, came to present themselves before the Lord. Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it, seeking to devour whom he could. And the Lord said to Satan, notice, the Lord said, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on earth, a blameless and an upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? In other words, Satan goes, ha, love you, fear you, right, you've bought the boy. I mean, he's the wealthiest man on the face of the earth. He's had nothing but picture-perfect health. He has this wonderful, beautiful family. You've bought him. With all your gifts, with all your blessings. And then notice what Satan says in verse 10. Hast thou not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has? On what? Every side. 
Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. Put forth thy hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse thee to thy face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. There's so much more that could be said here, but the only thing I want to point out is the hedge. God had a hedge around this boy. And Satan couldn't get through that hedge and touch him or do anything without God's permission. And that is true with you as well. It's true in your ministry. And that is why, by the way, and let's just, before we move to the second point, that's why Romans 8 ends the way it ends. Going back to Romans 8, let me begin at verse 31. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Goodness gracious, if nothing can touch me, that God won't work for my good. I mean, nothing, nothing, nothing. All things work to my good. If God's for who can be against me? Everything works for me. Now, it's hard to see at times. We're acknowledging that. That's the point of this story. Navigating the maze of God's providence. And when it is dark, when it is difficult to understand, what's to put our trust in God knowing that He is in control and He's working to accomplish His plan. And then He goes on. He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? I mean, if you doubt His love, look to the cross. Why would you ever doubt the love of Jesus Christ? That's what he's saying to you. I gave you my son. And if I gave you my son, I'm going to freely give you all things that you need as you go through the all things in life. I am going to act on your behalf to accomplish my plan for your life. And I'm going to meet that need. And then he goes on and he says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, just as it is written, for thy sake, we are being put to death all day long. There's persecution. There's adversity. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But, but, verse 37, in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. It's like Paul said, for, to live Christ, to die what? Gain. What can they do to me? It's not going to work for my good. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Look at the uh, second point, the second lesson. Accept the fact, accept the fact, and this is crucial right here. That many things happen in life that will never be understood until God completes the story. Therefore, faith in God is required so you do not close the book on God before the story is finished. 
This is so significant right here because we're, we have responsibility in this process. God wants us to reciprocate to his love by putting our trust in him and not wasting our sorrows, wasting our adversity, wasting our persecution by falling into unbelief and not putting our confidence in him. Again, it's our faith in God that releases his power that transforms that evil into our good. Look at James chapter 5, verse 11. Boy, you really see that here. This is another reference to Job. But James 5, 11 says, Behold, we count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. In other words, when you get to the end of the story, when you read the last page, what's the conclusion? God is compassionate. God is good. And Job what? He repented in ashes because of his anger towards God, because he had railed against God. When he was in that menacing, terrifying maze without a ray of light. But when the story was completed, it was good. And every story that God completes is good. Amen? Because he is a wonderful, compassionate God. Look at the third lesson. And this is an extremely, very simple, practical point. The key to successfully navigating the maze of God's providence is simply keep obeying God. Even though there appears to be no expectation of reward. Just keep obeying God. That's how you navigate the maze. Keep obeying God even when there's no expectation of reward. Now, let me explain that. When I say no expectation of reward, I mean no expectation of reward what? In this life, there is always expectation of reward in the next. But one of the great deficiencies in the American church is that there is a greater focus on gaining temporal reward than eternal rewards. And I'm not talking about sinful things. I'm talking about we, we look to God to give us a nice home, to give us health, family, freedom, security, comfort, happiness. But Joseph was stripped of all those things to suffer slavery, slander, imprisonment, and betrayal. You would be tempted to think God was guilty of child abuse in Joseph's case. And we struggle with that in our own lives when we're hurting. And you ask, well, why, why would God allow this? I mean, why would God delay? Why would God even withhold reward in this life? Well, let me answer that with another question. If God delivered you from adversity at the first cry for help, where would be the opportunity to build faith in God and develop godly character? We learn from Joseph, we learn from Joseph, we learn from Joseph that nothing a believer experiences can bring spiritual harm unless the believer responds with a wrong attitude. It is our response and our response alone to adversity and persecution that will either burn or bless us. 
And God desires to bless us. I cannot control what is done to me. But by God's grace, I can control my attitude and my reaction to that. By His grace, by His power at work in me. As I look at this good, great, loving God and put my trust in Him when I cannot understand what's happening. See, the, listen now, the eternal essence in any circumstance, and especially the painful circumstances in life, is not the circumstance itself, but my reaction to it, which puts a deposit in my character. I can waste the circumstance by losing faith in God, and that is the greatest tragedy in any believer's life. And as a result, I can let my character deteriorate. Or I can embrace the circumstance by trusting God and growing in godly character. So again, I want to come back now. We do have responsibility in this to look to God, to trust God. You know, we we don't want to become like Naomi. You remember her story? You know, she and her husband, because of famine, they go into Moab with their two sons. Two sons marry Moabite women. And what? All three women lose their husbands. And here Naomi comes back into Israel, into her hometown of Bethlehem. Ruth with her. You know the story. You don't have to go into great detail. That's not the point right now. And as she begins to come back into the home, her hometown, and she's been gone for years now, people begin to recognize her. There's Naomi. There's Naomi. Naomi looks at them and she says, don't call me Naomi anymore. You know what Naomi means in the, in the Hebrew? It means pleasant one, sunshiny one, bright one. She said, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara. And Mara means bitter. And she said, you call me bitter because Almighty God has dealt bitterly with me. She, at that point, she had lost her confidence in God. She had fallen into the gall of bitterness, only to hurt herself, to waste the sorrow, to waste the opportunity to grow in her faith and in godly character. And we do not want to make the same mistake. So the way to successfully navigate the maze of God's providence is to trust and obey God. Bottom line, as we saw earlier, did Joseph volunteer to be sold into slavery or spend years in prison? Of course not. He had no control over that, so he focused on the one thing he could control, his attitude, his reactions. In other words, he simply chose to do this. He says, I don't understand what's going on, but I'm going to pursue God's righteousness by being the best slave I can be in Potiphar's household. I'm going to be the best prisoner I can be in this prison. So are you suffering adversity right now? And you say, well, what what am I to do? I'm confused. I'm perplexed. Follow Joseph's example. No matter your circumstances, stop whining. Start shining by choosing to follow God's righteousness and do the next right thing in obedience to His Word. Look at the fourth truth, fourth lesson. The way to keep hope alive when lost in the maze of God's presence, providence, lost in the maze of God's providence, is to rejoice in God's promise even when there appears to be no hope for deliverance. Remember, God had given Joseph wonderful promises through dreams. 
that he would put him in a position of rulership, leadership, and his brothers and families would bow down to him. But now he's thrown into this prison. I mean, where's God's promise now? But we see hints throughout the story that he never lost sight of God's promise. Even when he was reunited with his brothers, the Scripture tells us in, in the book of Genesis that he remembered what God had revealed to him. So it's obvious through those 13 long years, he held on to God's promise. So we are continually confronted with painful and perplexing circumstances. And when we're confronted with those situations, we have a choice. On one hand, I have the human impossibility of my circumstance. On the other hand, I have the divine impossibility of God breaking His Word. What side am I going to light on? The human impossibility of my circumstance from my perspective or the divine impossibility of God breaking His Word? That yes, even this He'll call us to work for my good and His greater glory. And again, we're back to we make that choice to put our trust and our confidence in the very love of God. And then the fifth lesson, and I love this. It is, again, so practical, so simple, but so difficult to learn. The way out of the maze, the way out of the maze is not by focusing on finding the way out, but expressing love to the people you encounter while in the maze. Incredible lesson right here. You don't get out of the maze by frantically trying to find your way out. No, you stop and you love the people that you encounter. And it's through those encounters and expressing love that God will lead you out to the other side. See, Joseph, it's very obvious throughout his story. He took the focus off himself to what? To serve others. Serve Potiphar. To serve the uh, keeper of the prison. Uh, and at every turn, you see him ministering to folks. So God's ultimate goal is to teach us what? To love like Jesus. To do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind to regard others more important than ourselves. To let this attitude be in us which was in Christ Jesus, who although existed what? In the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to selfishly grasp, but he emptied himself, taking upon himself the form of a bond servant. And being made in the likeness of man, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. So you want to get out of the maze? You get out of the maze, not by frantically trying to find the way out, by loving people you encounter in the maze. You know, if I could go back to, uh, uh, my time's gone, but that's okay. I'll give you a full 30-minute break. But let, I need to share this. You go back to Romans 8, 28 and 29. And put, put this together now. This is precious. God's got you in the bubble of His love as a believer. He's given you an ironclad guarantee. Nothing, nothing, nothing will ever penetrate that unless I can use it for your good to accomplish my plan. And what's God's primary plan in your life? To make you like Jesus. Joel acknowledged this earlier. It's not looking for outcomes. It's looking to Jesus. And as we look to Jesus, because we ultimately are His masterpiece, to become more like Him, that releases God's power to bring about the outcome that God desires, that God has always planned for. So here I am in the bubble of His gate, and God says, nothing, I'm not going to let anything touch, get through that. 
unless it will accomplish my plan. And my plan ultimately is to teach you to love just like Jesus loved. Well, what's Jesus' love like? Well, I go to 1 Corinthians 13. And right off the bat it says, love is long-suffering. So I step back. I want to be biblical, you know, rooted in my, and grounded in my walk. Okay, here I am. I'm in the bubble of God's love. He won't let anything come through that hedge, that bubble, touch my life, unless he knows it can be used to teach me long-suffering. And folks, where's the only place he can put you to give you that opportunity? The only place. You have to suffer long. I don't know any other way you can learn long-suffering without having to suffer long. And not only long-suffering, but long-suffering in kind. That as you suffer long, you continue to be kind. To show love to those that you encounter in that maze while you're struggling even in your own life. And then you go a little bit further in that chapter. Love is not easily provoked. So again, here I am. God's not going to let anything get through my life, touch me, unless He knows He can use it to accomplish his plan to make me like Jesus, teach me to love like Jesus, and Jesus' love is not easily provoked, not easily made angry. So because Jesus loves me, because Jesus loves you, what is he going to allow to penetrate that hedge? Some very irritating people. That's why some of you are married to the person you're married to. That's why some of you have the children that you have, or the board that you have, or the staff, or the whatever, you just put it there. Or in your church family. But hear me, if you understand this, oh man, it changes everything. Those individuals that irritate you, that you want to stiff arm or run from, God says you are to embrace and receive them as gifts from me to teach you to love as Jesus loved. You go a little bit further, it says love does not take into account wrong suffered. Love's ability to forgive. God's primary goal in my life, your life, is to teach me to love as Jesus loved, to forgive as he forgave. If that is his goal, if that is his ultimate plan, what does he have to, what is necessary, it's necessary, necessary, necessary. He has to allow it to penetrate. Wrong, hurt, injustice. And the deeper the hurt, the deeper the wrong, the greater opportunity to plunge in the depths of Christ's love and to learn to forgive as he forgave. And then he says what? Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Well, if that's God's primary goal, what again does he have to allow to penetrate that hedge and touch my life? Some very unbearable circumstances. Well, I believe all hope's gone. I can't endure it another second. I view myself as a failure, and God says, all right, I got him right where I need him to be. <laughs> because we're forced to look to God to do something in our lives that we can never do, a work of grace through the power of the Holy Spirit as we put our trust and confidence in Him. Let me end with this. Many of you have heard this testimony. There will be some of you here that have not. Of course, we're taping this for wider distribution, and most that will see this on tape have not. Uh, but uh, CJ, put up the first picture there. This is uh, one of our clients uh, many years ago. Her name was Melanie, and that is the child that was saved uh, from abortion.
Melanie, when she came into our pregnancy center, uh, she was a believer. She was a committed believer that loved the Lord Jesus Christ with all of her heart. Her only desire was to honor Him. And several days before Christmas, she was violently raped. And as a result of that rape, became pregnant. I'm going to be very transparent about her testimony. When she came into our ministry, she was mad. She was angry with God. To be very honest, I've been in the ministry almost simultaneous with my conversion in 70. I don't know that I've ever encountered a believer more angry and disappointed with God than Melanie. And she was looking in my eyes, knowing that I was a minister, and she said, tell me why. I've sung all my life. Jesus loves me. This I know. The Bible tells me so. I've sung all my life. He holds the whole world in His hands. And you're going to tell me that this loving, all-powerful God just sat on His hands and did nothing while He watched me be violated in that fashion, and then you're going to tell me this loving, all-powerful God who I've always been taught opens and closes the womb, He allowed me to become pregnant as a result of rape. And she said, I don't know if I will ever be able to trust God again in my life. You probably can't read it. This is a cover of a magazine piece that was done on her, but the quote, in my case, everyone said abortion would be okay, and she's referring to her Christian friends, saying, we know abortion is wrong, but in your case, it would be the lesser of two evils. Our first encounter with Melanie couldn't have gone any worse. She left us still in the gall of bitterness, anger, just Again, lost in that menacing, terrifying maze with no ray of light, no ray of hope. Struggling with anger and disappointment with God, asking why. The only thing we accomplished, she agreed to come back into us one more time before she would make her decision whether or not to abort. That appointment came. She came in. It was going to be my opportunity to speak with her. And I was terrified. Because I'm thinking... We didn't have anything to share with her the other day. We don't have anything more to share with her now. And folks, literally, 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 I threw myself on the floor. I began to cry out to God, God, help me. Show me how to minister to this girl. Lord, bring your faith, bring your hope, your love to her. And God is my witness as i am got my nose in the carpet. It's like God tapped me on the shoulder and he said, Andy, when she comes in, remind her of the story of Joseph. And I'll be honest, my response was, Joseph? She's probably heard that story a million times. Sunday school, vacation Bible school. Andy, just remind her of the story of Joseph. Joseph? And then it was as if God said, hey, you got anything better to share with her? (laughs) So, Melanie comes in. She didn't even have to say anything. There's still the bitterness, the rage, the perplexity in her eyes. She's just consumed by it. And the first word out of her mouth before she ever sat down was, Why? Ask her to sit down. 
And I just rehearsed Joseph's life story. And then I turned to her and I said this. I said, Melanie, I can't answer your questions. And no one's going to be able to answer those questions until you see Jesus face to face. But here's the reality. We live in a world that's not right. A fallen world, spoiled by sin, that's filled with evil, injustice, wrong, hurt, pain, sickness. We could go on and on. And Melanie, I don't understand everything about God's sovereignty, but it's very obvious from the pages of Scripture and that God, in His sovereignty, made the decision that His children would not be immune from the consequences of the fall. That yes, His children can become hurt, wounded, persecuted, raped, abused, even killed, martyred, imprisoned like Joseph. But Melanie, here's the good news. We also have God's guarantee that He won't let anything touch us unless He knows He can ultimately work for our good in His greater glory. Because He's got a plan in it all. And it's going to be a marvelous plan. So why don't you and I right now, instead of believing that abortion would be the lesser of two evils, why don't we place our faith in a God who in the greatest of evils can bring good? Who in the greatest of tragedies can bring triumph? And that day at our pregnancy center... Although her faith was shaky, it was small, she turned from abortion to choose life because she was placing her faith in God. Although she was still perplexed, still in tremendous pain. I can honestly say, throughout the days of her pregnancy, we saw God just supernaturally carry her. It, it was a wonder to behold, to just see His, His grace just, just upholding her, carrying her through that pregnancy and through her struggles and perplexity. And then she gave birth to this beautiful that she named Grace as a testimony of the grace that worked in her heart while little Grace was being formed just inches below in her womb. And I've heard Melanie share her testimony and the thing that means so much to me, this, and if she were here today, this is what she would say. There's not a day that goes by. I still ask God, why? But she says, now from a totally different perspective. When I came into you, why? In anger, bitterness, disappointed with God, challenging, questioning God. But now, why, God, would you have chosen to bless me in such a unique way, in such a special way? And I also want you to know God has used this testimony throughout the nation. There are hundreds of babies that have been spared from abortion because of this testimony. There are women that have come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior as a result of this testimony. And, you know, I love Joel's emphasis about it's all about the end of the story and what God is doing. And that's the exciting thing about what you're doing. Go to the next picture. There's grace. That's God. 
you're looking at the glory of God. You're looking in a single picture at everything and more that we've just talked about. That God can take evil and bring something beautiful out of it as we put our trust in Him. I knew you would enjoy this. Go to the next picture. Here's the three generations. This is her first child. That's Melanie, Grace, and Brindley. And I can update the story. Uh, Grace recently had her third child. She has Brindley, she has Harrison, she has Haley. And I want you to know, I had the opportunity to see Grace in this church put her trust in Jesus as her Lord and Savior as a child. That girl has walked with Jesus all her life. In her youth group, she was just a light for Jesus. To this day, as a homemaker with her children and her husband, in her church, in her community, she is a light for Jesus. She knows she is so very, very special that she was delivered by God to be a child of destiny, to honor Him, to glorify Him. Would you bow with me in prayer? Let me ask, are there those here you would admit right now you're, you're just lost in that maze? You're terrified by it. You don't see a way, ray of light. You've struggled with bitterness. You've struggled with God. If that's true of you, would you be willing just to stand up right now so we can pray for you? Just stand up. If you're, if you're struggling right now in the maze, Father, you see these that are standing. You know the hard ship that they're struggling with, you know the heartache that they're experiencing, they're acknowledging they have been lost in the maze of your providence, they've struggled with you, and Lord, I pray that this day you will set them free, set them free from the bitterness, the anger, the disappointment, set them free to put their trust in you, that I believe it was Spurgeon of old that said, when we cannot trace God's hand, we can trust God's heart. And we trust you'll give them that confidence and grace. And then, Lord, for all of us, if we're not in that maze right now, it's right around the corner. And, of course, the whole purpose of this series is to look at the, what we anticipate increasing hostility towards Christianity in our pregnancy centers. And, Lord, so we know we have difficult days ahead and so, Lord, root us in the truth of your providence that we would never lose sight that you will do for us in our ministries what you did for Joseph. You will do for us in our ministries what you did for Melanie and Grace.
and we'll trust you for it. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen.